Hello and welcome back to the Basic Bible Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Thompson. And joining me today is Steve Christie, who's the author of the book, Why Protestant, uh, Why Protestant Bibles Are Smaller, A Defense of the Protestant Old Testament Canon. Steve, welcome to our podcast. Hey, Kevin. It's glad, I'm glad to be on. Looking forward to it. Yeah, this is a really fascinating book. And, and for a lot of people, they may not actually understand that the Protestant Bible we have, that you typically, the listeners of our program will be listening to or, or reading in their evangelical context, uh, we have 66 books, but then all of a sudden you might be surprised to know that your Catholic friend down the street has a little more in his Bible, or even maybe your Orthodox friend has even different books of the Bible that aren't included in yours. It could cause some some uh, confusion. So uh, this is a really great resource that I, that I hope you'll go out and get. Uh, so Steve, tell us first, before we even get into the book, Tell us a little bit about your testimony and your background, because that plays into a lot of what you cover in the book. Right, and it kind of builds on what you're saying. Um, I was, as I mentioned in the book, I was raised Catholic. In fact, as the Apostle Paul describes himself as the Pharisee, the Pharisee, you can kind of say that I was a Catholic of the Catholics. I was very devout. I loved the church. In fact, I was elected treasurer of the Knights of the Altar Boys uh, by my peers, which meant I was ranked fourth in line of all altar boys in my entire parish. And it's kind of a picture. We had each altar boys our whole parish, so it was quite the honor, and it gave me the opportunity to do certain things other people couldn't, like serve before the, the bishop um, of our diocese, which I actually did at the Rosary Cathedral, which ironically where I graduated from college 20 years later after I became a Protestant. I then went on to graduate from a Catholic grade school, high school, and college, and it was actually towards the end of my Catholic college education that I got saved and I converted to be a Protestant. Well, back when I was elected um, treasurer of the altar boys, I was leaving through my Bible, and we actually had two Bibles in our home. We had what's called the Gideon Bible, which was a Protestant Bible, and we had my great-grandmother's new Catholic version I still have today. And while I was comparing them and leaving through them, I kind of noticed that my Catholic Bible had more books than my smaller Gideon or Protestant Bible. I, I didn't really know what to make of this. Well, fast forward about 20 years, I came across a um, video from Catholic Answers, which is a Catholic apologetic website that, uh, and ministry that tends to defend the Catholic religion. And their senior apologist, Jimmy Aiken, stated that unlike the Sadducees, who only acknowledge the first five books of the Bible, the so-called Law of Moses, the Pharisees honored a much broader canon of Scripture, everything today we would find in a Protestant Old Testament. And I had been studying the Bible at that point, and that immediately took me to the book of Acts where the Apostle Paul, after he converted to Christianity, stated, I am a Pharisee. Now, I was a Pharisee, but I am a Pharisee, present tense. And according to Jimmy Aiken, a Pharisee like the Apostle Paul, his Old Testament, his books that he would have considered to be inspired scripture, were only limited to those books that are found in Protestant Old Testament today. And if you look to Luke chapter 16, I never really looked at this before, but if you look to Luke chapter 16, it states that the Pharisees were listening to everything Jesus was saying. And, he just, and Luke describes the Pharisees as lovers of the money, and that's really significant to the passage, because he refers to the Old Testament as the law and the prophets. And he goes on to talk about a parable of a rich man and Lazarus who dies and go to Hades, and the rich man is suffering, and he asks Abraham to send um, Lazarus back to warn his brothers, which are um, 
uh, reminiscent of the Pharisees, the rich man and, and, the, and his brothers are, who, uh, who are lovers of money uh, represent uh, them. And Jesus says an interesting thing to him. He says, they, referring to the Pharisees, have Moses and the prophets. And the word have comes from a Greek word, or we got a Greek word, English word echoed, like when you yell to a well and your exact words get echoed or returned back to you. So essentially Jesus was saying, they, the Pharisees, have possession of Moses and the prophets. And the term Moses and the prophets or the law and the prophets is a term to describe the Old Testament. So in essence, Jesus was saying that the Pharisees have possession of the exact Old Testament canon that Jesus was affirming, which Jimmy Aiken states is the same canon that Protestants have today. And it just kind of clicked, you know? Hmm. So, as you're you're going through this, you're studying this, and uh, people are, are wondering, okay, well, where did these books come from? Whether we call it the Apocrypha, or others, so, and really, this was uh, common knowledge up until, I'd say, more recent times, even the King James Version the original King James 1611 would have published um, these apocryphal writings as well as uh, Ger- uh, Luther's German Bible. So uh, where tell us a little bit about these books that we don't have in our evangelical canon. Right. And um, the term depends on whether you're a Catholic or, or a Protestant or something else. Um, if you're Catholic or you're an Eastern Orthodox, you would refer to these extra books, which are seven extra books in addition to Daniel and Esther. They refer to them as Deuterocanon, or which literally means the second canon, to separate them from the books that are in uh, Protestant Old Testaments, what they call Protocanon, or First Canon. Um, but for Protestants, they refer to them as Apocrypha, which means spurious or hidden. The early church, including Jerome, did not consider these extra books to be inspired scripture. And these books would be books like First and Second Maccabees, and like the additions to Esther and Daniel and Tobit, Judith and Baruch, and, you know, and a few others. And these are books that were written between the end of the Old Testament era, around 400 BC, and the beginning of the New Testament era. And like it says, most Jews, if not all Jews, did not consider these books to be inspired scripture because they weren't included um, in this Hebrew Bible. Now the question is, how did they get added to the Bible? Well, if you take a look at a version of the Septuagint today, they've got all these extra books as well as some other books that aren't in Catholic Old Testaments, like um, First Enoch and a few others. And it's assumed that Jesus and the New Testament writers, because they used it most of the time, that they were in there back then. Hmm. But by the New Testament, although they were aware of these books, they never considered them to be part of actual inspired scripture. So, and that's something that I go in more detail in the book. How did the early church deal with this? Well, the, well, it says the early church, the way they dealt with it, I mean, depending what you mean by early, I mean, like it says, the first century writers, they use certain terms to describe yeah. Old Testament books, like, it is written, have you not read? In fact, when Jesus corrected the Pharisees, he would say, have you not read? Have you, you know, the, the scriptures say, and there are certain terms to describe these Old Testament books. And in my book, I have a list of about 300 of these terms that are used in the New Testament to describe these Old Testament books. 100% of these 300 terms in the New Testament to describe Old Testament books, you can only find them in the Protestant Old Testament. And not a single one of them describes 
describes one of these apocryphal or so-called deuterocanonical books. Now, as time advances, what happens is the Septuagint starts getting added to these, they start adding more and more books, um, and the, the Gospels spread out, and uh, Christians are being persecuted. What you start seeing, you start, you start seeing different books, you know, additional books popping up in some of these Old Testament lists in some of the early church fathers. The problem is that they're not all consistent. Hmm. For example, Irenaeus, who is an early church father in the late second century and a canonized saint in the Catholic Church, he doesn't in- include any of the so-called uh, deuterocanonical books except for... Um, I think Baruch and, and the Epistle of um, of Jeremiah, and and he actually has other books such as a Shepherd of Hermas and the Book of Wisdom, but he puts them in the New Testament portion of his book, and he specifically calls the Shepherd of Hermas Scripture. Hmm. Fast forward a couple of years, we have these early church councils like the Council of Rome and the Council of Hippo and Carthage, and then there's a, there's a second the Council of Carthage in the fifth century where they tend to try to tackle these books. But the problem is these were not universal councils. These were local councils, even ones that were headed by uh, the Bishop of Rome. And even there, they are, they are not identical. Um, the, for instance, the Council of Carthage um, actually removed the Book of Revelation, which is why they had to have a second Council of Carthage to ratify the previous council that put the Book of Revel- Revelation back in. And none of these councils had the Book of Baruch or the Epistle of Jeremiah. Um, in any of the any of these councils, it, it, they, those books didn't get added later for another four hundred years, hmm. sometime in that century. So clearly, the 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 I guess we we'll call them early church fathers. There, the first few centuries of, of the new church um, considered these books maybe valuable, but not on the same level as scripture. These were not inspired words of God. Correct. I, they considered them themselves to be edifying, which is actually the reformers considered them to be edifying, so they were very reflective and mirrored the view of these books from the early church fathers um, in the Catholic Church, but like the early church fathers, the Protestant reformers did not consider them to be inspired. In fact, even popes and cardinals and other prominent um, uh, Catholics and leaders of the church did not consider them to be inspired. Uh, Pope Gregory the Great did not consider to be, them to be canonical scriptures. Um, uh, during the Reformation, prior to and during the Reformation, even cardinals like Cardinals Cajetan and Cardinals Menes, who were antagonistic against Luther, actually agreed with them. And, and even the well-known and revered Erasmus, who uh, produced a Greek translation of the New Testament, which Luther used for his German translation, uh, favored the, the Hebrew Bible, the books that are in Protestant Old Testaments. So is there value for us as Christians today to look at these books and, and, and to read them? Oh, sure, absolutely. I mean, we have some invaluable things that come from them. For, for example, if you take a look at the books of Maccabees, um, they actually talk about the reign and, and the death of, of, um, of Alexander the Great and other uh, historical events. You know, and I, In fact, a lot of them actually affirm some passages in books that were that are actually considered inspired, like the Psalms and, and, and the, the books of Samuel and stuff. So there is value there, and we hear and we hear about things like, like Hanukkah, you know, which is actually mm. described in the Gospel of John. But again, they are not considered to be inspired, and as Protestants, uh, we have to be careful about valuing them for historical content, but because they do make historical errors in them, um, as well as contradict previous and later inspired scripture, they're not at the same level as, as 
So you still need a discerning spirit about you as, as you pick up and read these if you choose to. Absolutely. And you know, the best way of doing that is, is realizing that the New Testament writers also really discern them. And that's the reason why in my appendix, as you saw, I have this list of these 300 terms or metonyms to demonstrate that the New Testament writers and Jesus were aware of these books. They were aware of these non-inspired um, books that were edifying for the early church, but they did not consider them to be scripture because they don't use one of these terms like it is written to describe them as inspired scripture. Okay, explain that a little more, because uh, when we read through the New Testament, Jesus and the Apostles, they, they quote frequently from the Old Testament, because this was the accepted scripture. In fact, most of the time when, when, when the New Testament is referring to the Bible or the, or the scriptures, they're talking about the Old Testament, so that's one of the reasons why we as New Testament Christians certainly accept the authority of the Old Testament. How do the New Testament writers treat uh, these, uh, these apocryphal books? Uh, they, they, again, they, they treat them like they would treat any other non-inspired writings. If there was something that was in it that they quoted, that particular quote would be considered inspired. But because they don't use one of these terms, they don't consider the entire book to be inspired. Sort of like the Apostle Paul, he quotes Epimenides and he quotes Menander um, is Plagueis, as well as you know some other um, pagan philosophers. But again, he doesn't consider them to be inspired. He borrows from that. You know, these books, just like the New Testament writers borrow from the Apocrypha, you know, a, a concept or, or, or a phrase or something that would be considered inspired. For instance, the Jew quotes uh, first Enoch, and he actually calls it prophecy, but he's not saying that the book of Enoch is prophecy. He's saying that, that the particular verse that's in that book is prophecy. And it's not just those books. There are a lot of other books and writings that the New Testament alludes to or quotes, like 3rd and 4th Maccabees, which is not, which are not in Catholic Testaments, or the Assumption of Moses, 3rd Ezra, 2nd Baruch, which is sometimes um, referred to by another name, right? as well as uh, the, the Book of Jubilees, the Psalms of Solomon. None of these books are in, are in uh, Protestant or Catholic Old Testaments, but they, there is value to them, and, and they can borrow from them to apply to, to Christian principles. So how do the Eastern Orthodox uh, Church, how, how, how do they play this? Because this seems like a whole different ballgame here. Uh, they have other books that they would include that even the Catholic Church doesn't. Yeah, yeah, and like I said, they they books like Believe uh, Fourth Maccabees and Third Ezra's and, and others. Um, and again, the reason that they have these additional books is because as the Septuagint began to add additional books to their canon, the later Eastern Orthodox Church, after the schism of 254, where they broke away from the Catholic Church, they began to base their Old Testament canon from the Septuagint, but, but again, what they realize is that Septuagint continued to grow after the first century, so while they do accept the same seven books that are in Catholic Old Testaments, plus the additions to Daniel Lester, they began to accept a lot of these other books, and, and actually what's kind of ironic is if you go back to those fourth century church councils, a lot of the members of those councils were in the Eastern or Byzantine church. And they actually favored, most of them actually favored the smaller canon, like Jerome and um, Epiphanius of Salamis and, and several other um, uh, early church fathers from the East. But it's, again, as time went on and dissension happened between the Latin church in the West and the Greek church in the East, the schism finally broke away. They felt that the Septuagint was the go-to text um, 
to be considered inspired scripture, you know, and so that's why they accepted these additional books. But if you go back really far, what we actually find is that the Septuagint, again, was a lot smaller and, and it wasn't really consistent. For example, we have 23 copies of the ancient Septuagint as well as one copy of the Old Latin. And Old Latin was just the version of Latin that the early church used before Jerome um, translated the Bible, you know, into the Vulgate. And these early copies of the Old Testament, of the Septuagint, the Old Latin, actually can, uh, contain some books that you don't find in capital Testaments, and uh, only have like some books that um, wisdom that's in the, in the New Testament. So, if wisdom is considered an Old Testament book, then why is it found in New Testament lists of some of the early church fathers and canonizing to the Catholic Church? Hmm. So let's jump to the New Testament. Uh, now, mostly. It's interesting because you make the point that we have a lot of agreement here on the New Testament, but you always see these, um, you know, right around Easter or Christmas, if you're watching A&E or the Discovery Channel or National Geographic Channel, you'll, you'll see these lost books of the Bible as if somehow there's a great conspiracy years ago uh, from early church fathers to hide certain writings that they didn't like, but now we have unearthed them, and all of a sudden a whole new light is shed on the New Testament. Um, they're, they're always, of course, uh, it, it's, it's laughable because we, we've known about these books. For, they haven't been hidden, um, but they have been rejected. So, so tell us about some of the things like, um, even good books like the Didache, which is valuable to read, go through, the Epistles of Clement and things like that. Um, how did, uh, how, why was the decision to leave those books out? Yeah, well, and, and of course, one of my fa favorite from A and E and, and uh, Discovery Channel is when he mentioned about Constantine at the Council of Nicaea. Right, writing. right. <laughs> and when in reality, the Council of Nicaea had nothing to do with the canon. Yeah. You know. Yeah, but to kind of answer your question, I mean, we can go back almost all the way to the first century when the, the early church and the leaders and the apostles were affirming the, actually the New Testament books. For example, if you take a look at the book of Jude, which was written by Jesus' younger half-brother, he actually quotes extensively Second Peter. He says that what he's writing down, he actually got specifically from the apostles. And if you read Second Peter, Second Peter is a warning of a lot of the dangers that are coming in, in Jude and false prophets, and Jude is saying they're already here, you know, so he's affirming that. So he's actually affirming Second Peter. And then when you read Peter's epistles, he states, um, uh, talks about Paul's epistles and compares them to the rest of Scripture. And as the Apostle Paul states, all Scripture is God-breathed, which would include his own epistles by the authority of, of Peter. And then he quotes the Gospel of Luke and, he, and Luke's writings, and he refers to it specifically as Scripture. He uses one of these metonyms or terms that Jews state that even these New Testament books are just as inspired as the Old Testament can. And when you read Luke, Luke says that he got his information from a lot of other, um, you know, uh, eyewitnesses to the accounts, like, like Matthew. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as the synoptic gospels, meaning they tell a lot of the same stories, but just in their, their own way without contradicting each other. So by the mid-first century, you've got the majority of the Bible already recognized in the early church. All right, well, we are we're running out of time here, and I appreciate, you know, well, actually, let me, let me pause here. I try to say this to every author I know. Um, I appreciate the fact that you use footnotes and not endnotes. That makes it a whole lot easier 
for me, the reader, to, to go through. And, and you have quite a few footnotes in here. Uh, this is a well-documented book. It, it's obvious you took your time, you did the research, and uh, I want to highly recommend our readers to get this book and to take the time, block off some time for this. This isn't going to be an easy read, but it's a valuable read. And it is interesting. I don't want to say it, it's, it's hard in, in the sense of you're going you're gonna to hate getting through it but there's a lot of material here and you're going to be so much uh more informed after reading this book so thank you for all the your hard labor for for us oh you're welcome and thank you very much for having me on and, and it's like it's just part of the reason i wrote this is because i noticed that this was the topic that just in the last 10 or, 10 or 15 years that has generated a lot of interest you know about the old testament canon and we'd be surprised to know that even many Protestants, like you said, don't know that the canon yeah. between Catholic and Orthodox and Protestants are different. You know, and the reason is why are they different? We can't just trust what we've been taught. We can actually know from the authority of Scripture and Jesus and the New Testament writers, as well as early Jewish and Christian history, that as Protestants we can be assured that um, not only that we have the right canon, but that it proves that Jesus did rise from the dead and die on the cross for the payment of his mm. heart sin. All right, again, the name of the book is Why Protestant Bibles Are Smaller, Defense of the Protestant Old Testament Canon, by our guest here today, Steve Christie. We, uh, so usually at the, at the end of our programs, we, we, we do recommend a resource. Obviously, this is the recommended resource we're doing today. But, uh, Steve, tell us a little bit about your other book. Um, you wrote a book before this, Not Really of Us, Why Do Christians of Children, Excuse Me, Why Do Children of Christian Parents Abandon the Faith? Tell us a little bit about that book. Yeah, actually, it's funny that this group, the book actually grew out of the first one because um, one of the reasons why um, Christian kids abandon the faith for is because they say that um, not all Christians believe the same thing, and if they're supposed to be a unified church, how can that be? And part of the reason is because they don't go strictly by Scripture. A lot of your, your traditions you know, um, don't do that, and that can generate confusion when they start learning about other faiths. But what happens is that as kids grow up, they, uh, they adopt they, the faith of their parents, but then as they get older, a lot of times they begin to question um, their faith. And a lot of times we assume that once they go off to secular college or out into the world, that's when they lose their faith. But in reality, a lot of these doubts happen as young as sixth grade or older. And I draw on the parable of the four soils or the parable of the sower in, um, in the Gospel of Matthew, where he talks about four different so soils, you know, that... Uh, represent the hearts of people that, that grew up in the church. And, um, and I, each chapter I dedicate to a different type of child and how to cultivate um, those children early on because a lot of times they don't tell us that they're having doubts or what those doubts are or are completely honest because they don't want to disappoint their, their parents or their caregivers or their church leaders. So it's good for us to be able to give them a defense for their faith with gentleness and reference like the Apostle Peter tells us, you know, and even after they live, believe the faith, I give some um, godly and scriptural um, advice uh, from the Bible on how to deal with them, you know, such as, you know, waiting for a window to open and, um, and, and to be consistent. I, I kind of give like a top uh, 10 list, you know, to, to help uh, parents, you know, when they're struggling. But the main reason is my title states not really of us. It comes from First John chapter 2, verse 19, where the Apostle John says they went out from us because they were not really of us. And essentially John is saying the reason that they left the faith for is because they were never truly converted to the And We'll have links to both of those uh, books on our website. 
Steve, final question. How can we learn more about you and your ministry and, and what's going on? Yeah, um, there's a couple of different ways of um, uh, checking it out. Like this, if you want to um, contact me, you can you can find you know either book um, on um, Amazon.com. That's probably the easiest way to get both books. Um, I also have a website. It's, uh, the, it's called Vernissage. It's V-E-R-N-I-S-A-G-E.us backslash Steve Christie. You know, it's kind of a mouthful. The yeah. other way of doing it would be probably easier is to contact me on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube. And my my sign name is Born Again RN. I'm a registered nurse, so Born Again RN. You can find out about my ministry, find out about, about my books. I also do speaking engagements at churches on both books now. Um, so I'm and I'm open, and you can if you can contact me that way as well. All right. Well, see, thank you so much. We'll have links to all that again on our website. Uh, so don't forget to check that out, www.basicbiblepodcast.org. Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Kevin, and God bless. All right, I want to thank all of you for listening. Don't forget our website, and then check us out on Twitter and Instagram, at Basic Bible Cast. So until next week, have a great rest of your week. <laughs>